You are listening to the Apex Hour, hosted by Ryan Paul on KSUU Thunder 91.1. This show allows more personal time with our guests, allowing them to give us their stories and opinions. We will also give you new music to listen to, hoping you enjoy some new sounds and genres. Welcome to this episode of the Apex Hour. Sorry we had to fade that last song out. That was Black Bangs Bad by Dunk Sue. We're having a bit of uh, technical issues, but my name is Reese. This is KSUU, Thunder 91 FM, Cedar City. And I am going to be a part of the Apex Hour. And now I will leave the floor to Sophie. Thank you, Reese. I'm the producer, Sophia Javaj. I'm joined with Apex director and professor of history, Ryan Pohl, and our special guest, Dr. Lindsay Roper. I'm turning it over to you, Ryan. Thank you, Sophie, and thank you, Reese. We appreciate uh, all you're doing and all you're doing to be here. So we're excited. I'm excited to talk about what the our, our subject today which is scientific illustrations so dr roper joins us from a professor here at suu in biology and what i always like to start with is how we get to now so can you tell me you know why you chose this what led you to to be here yeah um so for the longest time i really liked science as a kid i loved going out and collecting bugs i was that kid and not like playing with barbie dolls And then I always had just a love of art. And so it took me way too long in my life to realize that the two could be combined. So I, in teaching my students, had figured out that drawing pictures on the board was extremely helpful. And so I decided to get some professional training and expand my interests further. And that just made me dig into some really cool artists. When we we think about scientific illustrations, the the person that I think most people think about is John James Audubon, right? The the great ornithologist and and bird painter, drawer, or whatever you want to call it. (laughs) But in your discussions and in your work that you've presented us, there's a lot that comes before that, right? It's not that Audubon is this innovator in many ways. I mean, he's building on the work of others, whether he knows it or not. So can you briefly talk about the role of illustrations and some of those people that that led us up to there? Yeah, so James Audubon, he's an interesting character because his work is really known for its artistic value. He really didn't do a ton in terms of new scientific value. However, there were people like Andres Vesalius in the 1500s, also those like Maria Sibigamarian, which most people probably aren't familiar with, as well as Ernst Haeckel, who really stepped forward and used art not only to communicate new science, but also as a mode of education. And so they really built, in a lot of ways, this ground that we should now work on moving forward about how we can actually reintroduce things like art into science for the purpose of education, not necessarily just for because it's pretty. So when you say introduce art into new science, what exactly do you mean by that? So science and art for the longest time, we're related with one another back, you know, if we want to go clear back to like the Renaissance period, those two kind of went together. And we decided in about the 1700s, maybe 1800s, depending on how you measure it, they no longer wanted to be together. Science basically said we are going to be based in empirical data, hypothesis, scientific method. And they kind of walked away from art because they felt like it was entirely counter to their belief system and how you did proper science. 
And I think it's time to fold it back in. I think there's so much interesting stuff in terms of whether it's astronomy or whether it's things microscopically where now we have the technology to really use it and bring the two together. In your work, you've, you've used a phrase when we talk about this illustration, scientific illustration of shared visual literacy. I mean, I think that what Obviously, it, it means something to the illustrator, the scientist, but then it also needs to mean something to whoever's watching it, and somewhere we have to have common ground. What do you mean by a shared visual literacy? When we talk about shared visual literacy, we're kind of talking about this idea that if two people from very different positions decide to look at an image, they both come away with the same general idea. That needs to be based on some specific standards that lead people to those conclusions. So to give you a really simplistic example, think of like international signage, right? Like H means hospital. Everybody has agreed on, you know, that kind of a term, or at least in most countries, or bathroom signs, right? Like we have the little man and the woman, and that's just kind of this shared visual idea of, oh, okay, we know what that means. And so as scientists, we need to step back and say, okay, what are some cues, some visual elements that we can utilize so that people know what we're trying to communicate? And a lot of the stuff we use now, there really isn't that level of communication. So in your mind, what are some of those things in the scientific way? What are some of those shared visual literacies that we have? So one of the things where I think we've started maybe to make a little bit of progress would be if you look at models of space, for instance. Like, astronomy has become so cool and so popular lately among both the public as well as professionally. And most people can look and go, oh, okay, galaxies look like this, or stars look like this. I think most people understand that they're not really that color, but that we have to color them in order for you to see what these different parts are. So that's kind of this idea of a shared understanding of this is a representation that we've colored to give it this appearance. Where in other things, like for instance, um, I used in my talk the example of the COVID virus, for a lot of microscopy images, we, especially for really small things, we use a process called pseudo coloring, where we label specific parts with specific colors that idea is not something that's commonly shared. So when we show, you know, the little red COVID virus, people think, oh, okay, yeah, that's what it really looks like. No, no, it's not. So, I mean, I have in my mind this vision of of some kid in the 50s with a solar system mobile, right? That we have this idea of this is what the Earth looks like. This is Saturn has the rings, whether that's exactly the color or not. We know that it's Saturn because it has the rings. Is that the idea? Yeah, definitely. And I think that it's interesting when you talk about that as we we ponder, I mean, obviously astronomy is one way, but maybe dinosaurs. Is there a similar kind of idea that we have this understanding of what a dinosaur looks like because we have that shared idea? Yeah, so paleo art has done an awesome job of actually showing kind of what these dinosaurs would have looked like. And they're really amazing artists to me because they basically take some fossil records, they have conversations, and then they do their best to basically be a detective and recreate these creatures that are now gone and we have no ability to basically say whether it's correct or not. People understand, okay, dinosaurs, I kind of know what that is. And so if you were, for instance, showing people a series of organisms, there might be 
a pretty good amount of people who go, oh, you know what? I know that one's a dinosaur, right? They could identify that because there's these shared common features that they've been introduced to. It also reminds, so if, as long as I'm on the same page here, when we buy a globe, right, that Africa is a different color and, and obviously because we know those aren't those colors, but it's, we have this understanding in our mind that this is an art to represent the relief of these continents from the water. Exactly, yeah. So where do we learn this stuff? Like, where do we figure this this idea out? That is it art and science that are, are this kind of cognitive dissonance with each other? Or where do we begin learning these shared visual cues? Is it in elementary school science? Or, or where do we begin this process? I think this process really has to begin at that younger age. And it doesn't necessarily have to be related to science. It's just understanding how to analyze visuals. If you kind of think about it in terms of a field, we teach people how to analyze text all the time, right? You read something, you tell us what it means. You know, most of us can read a sentence and say, wow, the author was trying to convey emotion or something like that by the use of these words. We don't do any type of that training when it comes to visuals. It's not something that's focused on. You might get it if you, say, take an art class, but otherwise it's not part of our regular pedagogy. So I think just starting with visual analysis, maybe on an artistic level at a young age, would be extremely helpful. So what point do, do scientists, I mean, historically then, begin to say, I'm going to write this down, but maybe we need an illustration so you can see Does it have to do with literacy or what does it have to do with? I think for a lot of scientists, they would love to see their work done in a visual manner. They just either don't know how to do it or they don't know how to access it. That is definitely not something that was involved in my graduate school training was how to visualize things. I remember when I was creating figures for a paper, I really didn't get any training in that. And when I would take them to my PI, my principal investigator, the first thing he would do was sit down with a ruler and make sure my edges were straight. And that was his idea of what an effective figure was, was everything had to be lined up perfectly. So that's really not good training there. And so we need to start to train scientists on how to do this in a way, almost like advertising, right? It's appealing. It grabs interest. It makes people want to know more. But there was a time when that was done, right? Are we relearning how to do this or is this something that we're bringing to the table now? It was done in certain ways in the past with like Vesalius, for instance, and some of these other people, but it's never been something that science said, we are going to have these visuals. We've, we've never really sat down and said that that was important. And so while there have been certain scientists that have embraced it, I don't think we're anywhere near the level that we need to be. Fascinating. Well, we're time, We're ready for our first break. And as regular listeners know, we always ask our guests to give us a list of some of their songs that resonate with them and tell us a little bit about why. So for the first break, our song will be Call Me Little Sunshine by Ghost. And I want to ask you, Lindsay, why did you choose this song? So I just love Ghost in general. Tobias Forge, the front man, he is just this absolute character. But when he wrote this song, one of the reasons he did it, he said that he wanted to create something extremely heavy, kind of like Hell's Bells. So he kind of put this version together with that, as well as kind of a for whom the bell tolls type of a, a scenario. And so I really liked his take on it.
That was "Call Me Little Sunshine" by Ghost. You were listening to the Apex Radio Hour. I'll turn it back to you, Ryan. Thank you, Sophie. We're here in the studio with Dr. Lindsay Roper from our biology department here at the university, talking about scientific illustrations and those kinds of things. We just、uh, had this conversation about the role of art and science being somewhat together, then being separate, and then kind of this. I think. The subtitle of your work that you've been presenting is a call for new illustrators. What I think about that way is really what the, a university really is about: is focusing on interdisciplinary connections between our disciplines. So, as you know, I'm a historian and you're a, a, sci- a biologist, and I find it fascinating that that you have done a lot of work in teaching. This nature of interdisciplinary education. So, can we talk about that? And, and let me just say, I think this is fascinating because you have taught or lectured on the exploring biology through professional wrestling, which I want to talk about, science fiction and horror, sex drive and flavor. So, can you kind of give us some information about this kind of stuff? 
Yeah, so a lot of time what I try to do is bring in science with something more common because for a lot of students, they've had very bad experiences sometimes with science in the past, right? They remember that horrible science fair project they had to do where they made their volcano with baking soda or something like that. A lot of them also associate science with math, and if they're not good at math, they shouldn't do science. And so if we can find a way to bring them into these other areas where they're learning science, but they're also connecting it and having fun with it, then it becomes something so much more enjoyable for them. So one of my favorites off of that list is a team talk class talking about interdisciplinary um, that I'm currently doing with um, Professor Chris Phillips. It's the philosophy and physiology of professional wrestling. So we use professional wrestling as a way to look at topics such as race, gender, sex, personal identity, ethics, morals, as well as um, things like the role of sport and how it reflects kind of the American dream. So throughout the semester, we're exploring these topics from kind of all three different directions. And that's been, I mean, people really dig that kind of stuff? Every student we've had in the class says it's one of the best classes they have ever taken. So... Biology through science fiction, just just as a curiosity of mine, what is your, your favorite science fiction film? Now, I, I will qualify this. Oftentimes, one's favorite is not one that one will watch over and over and over again. So my question is then, what is your favorite, and what is the one you go back to over and over again? So I think probably my favorite, I guess if you want to call it science fiction film, would be the first one I ever saw, which was the original Night of the Living Dead in black and white, right? You can't watch it in the color redos. It's just, it's sacrilege. The one that I go back to over and over again lately has been Cabin in the Woods. I just love that whole concept of riffing on all of those kind of horror genre reoccurring elements. And I just really enjoyed the humor alongside it as well. So to take a little more of a serious turn, we've talked about interdisciplinary things and nothing exists in a vacuum. And what you have talked about in your work is this idea that while there are many of these illustrators who we we don't know and maybe deserve credit for their illustrations, that we cannot turn away from the problematic parts of those things. And in fact, I think you had said that that as scientists, we need to accept that. And I would argue that, uh, and I do in my history classes, that that we are not all good, all bad, we're composites. And, and the history, to, to truly understand who we are as a people, we need to understand who we are in our entirety. So let's, let's talk about some of those problematic things that we need to recognize. So a lot of times as scientists, we look at science today and we see it happening in the laboratory and we almost do feel like it's in a vacuum. But a lot of those past accomplishments, we have to recognize that our success was based on the pain or suffering of someone else, whether that was through colonization, whether that was through the unethical use of other human beings and their bodies in our experimentation. And while I know we're all going to make mistakes in life, what I can't abide by is us making the same mistakes over and over again and not learning from them in the first place. So we need to step up. We need to see those mistakes and say, what are we going to do to be better? One of the things that you have talked about in this regard that I think is very interesting and deserves a conversation is this, uh, this Perkoff atlas. And maybe you, you could talk a little bit about, about that, if you would. 
Yeah, so the Perkoff Atlas was something that only came across my radar probably about four or five years ago um, in teaching one of my biomedical ethics classes. And what it is, is it was a medical atlas made for medical students that we found out later on in its history that the images in it were drawn based on concentration camp victims. So there is a thought that some of these victims were maybe killed purposely just for the ability to create these anatomical atlases. And in some of the older editions um, before 1964, you can actually see the artist signatures have swastikas. And it creates this kind of really interesting conundrum ethically because the images specifically of like vasculature as well as like the nervous system, we have nothing that compares to the absolute detail. And there was even a case where a physician, a neurosurgeon, she during a surgery actually sent one of her nurses back to her office to get that atlas so she could find this nerve because there was a woman who had such horrible pain in her leg she wanted it cut off if they couldn't relieve the, this nerve pain. So it brings up this idea of how do we use this information ethically while recognizing where it came from and honoring the people who really gave up their lives for it. So how do we do that? So that's a great question. There's a lot of articles on, um, and people have discussed this. One of the things that has come out was that it should only be viewed when necessary. So um, not kind of like it's not open access on the internet type of a scenario. And most individuals who do use it for teaching, they make sure that they spend a good amount of time understanding the history of where that came from before they use it. So it cannot be taught without the history attached to it. And, and I think you had written that, that this was a text that was still used in medical schools well into the 1970s. Is that correct? Actually, it was not considered out of print until 1994. So not too long ago that we were still using it. So the argument of using material like that is that it is detailed, it is maps, really, maps to these things that have been done. But at what point then does all of the photography and science, I mean, all of the other images that we can now use to describe these things, when do that supplant that kind of stuff? You know, I, when it comes to my interaction with like, for instance, cadaveric dissection and things like that, preserved bodies, which is what we usually use now, those things like nerves and veins just fall apart quickly due to that preservation process. And so really what we're going to need is either someone's going to have to sit down and do an extremely detailed three-dimensional reconstruction, or um, we're going to have to go back to creating images from living human beings, which I don't see happening anytime soon. We are going to have to maybe use this material, but make sure that we're treating it the way that it should be for quite a while. Yeah, because you talk about that people would go and dig up corpses for dissection, you know, obviously poor people or pauper cemeteries. And, and I think you even talked about one guy who created dioramas out of these things that were in people's homes yeah so kind of like you know it's kind of creepy if you think about it is your shoebox diorama from like fifth grade but he would collect infant skeletons and then he would mummify organs such as like bladders and nerves and sinew and actually make like these natural scenes and he would use like gallstones to be rocks and it's like okay who doesn't just go out and get their rocks right like out of Mm -hmm. the yard and then put those in their diorama 
And so there's an instance where like human body parts were put on display for other people's enjoyment without their permission. So there is some really kind of icky, gross stuff in the background there. Yeah, and it's interesting because you think about that. Not, I mean, we obviously talk about it in the the challenge of, of human beings, but even in animals, right? I mean, there are some who really are opposed to things like taxidermy, but but there are others who are creating these scientific things you know, back in the day using, you know, harvesting animals in very inhumane ways. Or even we have, you know, I remember this is when HBO very first came out. I was in in like elementary school and we got it at my house. And I remember I faked sick. No, it was, it was cable. I faked sick so I could watch the Disney Channel. And the thing that I remember watching is the Living Desert Disney Nature Show. And then it comes out years later that these Disney photographers would actually, you know, chase the lemmings off the cliff and, and recreate these things for our for our educational benefit, right? So it's not just people, it's feathers for hats and it's other kinds of things that we're trying to deal with in, in larger perspectives. Yeah, and even the um, more recent arguments about artifacts from Native American tribes, right? Them calling for them to return from the British Museum. Everything that we have, whether living or non-living, means something to someone, and it's someone's property. And we need to understand that while we want knowledge, we can't violate massive amounts of ethics in order to basically source that knowledge. Does the end justify the means, or do the means justify the end? Right. My my favorite is um, from Jurassic Park, right? Malcolm. Like, we spent too much time thinking about if we could. We never stopped to think if we should. Yeah, but it was a good movie, too. It was such a good movie. <laughs> and a great book. So with that, let's move on to our, our second, our, our next break. This is a song that you have chosen called Money by The Warning. Can you tell us a little about that? Yeah, so The Warning is actually a group of three sisters um, from Mexico. Women in heavy metal is something that is kind of emerging. They haven't been there for a long time. And they actually caught my attention because they did an awesome cover of Enter Sandman with another um, young female vocalist from Canada. I, since then, I just couldn't have put them down. So I'm really enjoying their stuff. Hey,
Welcome back to the Apex Radio Hour. That was Money by The Warning. I'll turn it back to you, Ryan. I think that after a song like that, it should be Thunder 91.1. <laughs> Something like that. What do you think? Oh, yeah. I'm bringing you the rock. So so the the I want to talk about this thing that I find interesting in your work as I was listening to and reading some of the stuff. The, there was a guy, I'm assuming it's a guy, named Schmeling. Schmelly. Schmelly. I want to say, yeah, so Schmelly, who begins drawing images of fetuses in the womb for the purposes of of midwives and and this whole idea of male midwives, right? And I, I think this idea of you thinking about how the medical profession was divided. Can you talk about that and male midwives and what, what Schmelly brings to that? Male midwife is kind of an interesting concept, and there's two real camps on it. Shmelly gets a lot of credit for actually being like the founder of modern obstetrics as we know it, but also more kind of contemporary analysis of his work suggests that basically they took the field away from women, right? So this was a, the female-dominated field for so long, um, and they were kind of pushed out because they couldn't get their education in universities. But he did, in kind of part of that transition, try to make texts that could show people basically what was going on in the womb during, say, like a breech birth, or perhaps when there was some type of cord had been wrapped around the neck or something like that, so that they knew what was inside that they couldn't see in order to try to maybe like reverse the baby and bring it out differently. And so since he did rely so heavily on images, a lot of women could actually access that information, which helped with population studies have tried to kind of estimate, but they've seen that educated male midwives, as well as like Smelly, for instance, had a better infant I guess you say a reduced infant mortality rate. So it did kind of make a difference at that point in time. So you have said that that actually it was a, a status symbol to have a male midwife versus a female midwife because they cost more? Or what's the reasoning there? Yeah, so actually because they cost more, they kind of became this status symbol. And originally having a male midwife was actually something that was totally unheard of because the kind of cultural thing at the time was that women should never be nude or exposed to a man that wasn't their husband. Um, and so if a male was called in to assist in a birth, it was usually because literally the baby was not going to make it and mom's life was also in danger. And even then, they would actually like operate blind. So the women would be so draped, they'd have to put their hands up underneath the drape. They couldn't look at anything and had to feel around, basically, um, in order to do this. And so it was a kind of a weird change in culture that all of a sudden, since it cost money, it was a status symbol. What leads then this shift into male obstetrics? Why do then we lead into male midwives? What's happening there? It's mostly tied to this professionalization of the medical field. Up until you know, kind of this point in time in history, basically anybody could put up a shingle and call themselves a doctor. And so when we actually started to kind of regulate the field, create professionalization, create credentials, I think there were men who in good conscience wanted to help women so that they maybe didn't pass away from childbirth. I think there was probably also a good group of them that saw a huge cash opportunity because people were having kids all the time. And so um, they kind of jumped into that. You describe the, the illustrations of Schmeling, which are really, I mean, it surprises me when I see them, when I saw them, how old they were, right? They look fairly it was like the Gerber baby in many ways, that same kind of style, right? <laughs> that that kind of look. 
but you said that he was doing that. I think you used the term an x-ray view. Like, what, what does that mean? Yeah. So if you, you know, if you're assisting at a delivery and for instance, let's say that you have an infant's foot that has emerged from the vagina, but not the rest of it. He wanted to kind of show you, okay, these could be the positions that the babies are in. So then if you need to go in and like turn the baby around, you know, kind of what's in there that you're working around. And he actually created these images in kind of an interesting way. And this is kind of like, it makes these images, you take them in a totally different light after you hear this. What he would do was he actually had in his medical teaching lab preserved torsos of women. So he would literally cut the legs off and cut them off, like basically with the diaphragm. And then he had preserved babies in jars and he would basically like set them up like some type of gory still life and bring these artists in to draw them. And so he was able to like move them around in all these various positions. Yeah, no, it's kind of creepy when you start to think about it. So, but, so I guess my question is, is that, so it's almost like an ultrasound, right? Like now a doctor would get an ultrasound or, or see that that way. And so you envision somebody holding up a book and the guy's flipping through the pages to find out, well, I feel the foot here, show me that picture. Yeah. Foot on page 37, you know, and you find that. I think it's fascinating. And I think it ties in the same idea of who these illustrations are for, because you also talk about a guy named Fuchs who is a botanist. Is that correct? Yes. And and he, I think it's, fa- I, I mean, it just seems like there's so much to talk about here, but but these wars that these illustrators would have over whose was the best and, and who's, you know, sold the most and who had the most images. And I think, is it Fuchs is the guy that actually takes the writing out of his book? Talk about that, will you? Yeah, so he was at war um, with a man named... Um I'm going to say Cunarius is is the correct way to say it. And basically they were both competing to translate the ancient Greek texts, right? When we when we start going into that. Cunarius basically said, I'm going to translate them exactly as written. I'm not going to add anything to them. People are going to have to take them as they are. Whereas Fuchs was like, no, I want these these images. And he was basically seen as a charlatan because he decided to use images because it was seen as not appropriate for science. And um, so that was when he was like, no, if I'm going to go image, I'm going to go full image and we're just going to go buy the images. And they actually were widely distributed. And he did the images because he wanted to create almost like citizen scientists, right? He wanted to, I think what you say, do you know what you were looking at? He wanted people to see. So, So talk about how people would use these images. Originally, one of the things that he wanted to do with this text was actually encourage lots of people to keep gardens. He wanted to make sure that they were growing their own herbals as well as like growing food plants and things like that. So first he thought it could be an educational tool for for that purpose. And one of the places where his book was actually used was in Paris, France. They took some of his plants and would actually tell you where to go find them in Paris. And so people could like literally do walking tours of Paris to different gardens and areas, and then they could go identify his plants in those different areas. So it was kind of this interesting thing that grew out of it. So is this like the forerunner of the field guide, or or is that another thing? Yeah, no, I'd say it's kind of a good first start at a field guide, definitely. I also think that it's interesting in in your work of scientific illustrations. We've talked about people and plants, but we, we briefly talked about animals. Could you mention this idea of illustrated maps and how that leads us to the same kind of idea? 
Yeah, so around in the 1500s, um, when we were kind of starting these huge sea explorations, they would come back and basically the first thing, right, anyone who, who wanted, who kind of financed an expedition wanted was a map, right? They wanted to see the new world. They wanted to see the land that they were at. Because these were usually wealthy individuals, they wanted to put them on their walls. And so what do we do? Oh, well, let's draw some really cool, pretty things on it. And that kind of led to early illustration of these animals that these um, sailors would report seeing. And so you see some really wild things included on there. Some of them we can identify today. Others were like, we have no idea where that came from in any way, shape, or form. So we consider these art, but in some ways they're science? Yeah, so the term that I've heard used most is people call them either emblematic animals or iconic animals. So they're not a representation of the thing itself, but an idea of the thing. Just kind of like we have, you know, like emojis or icons or things like that. And so that was kind of, I guess, if you want to say some of the first emojis, which is kind of interesting. There's a dissertation out there. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Dissertation topic. So in your work, you have talked about this idea of artists. And then I think the second part which I think is equally important, is this idea of a call for illustrators, a call for a new art science, if you will. So uh, as we as we wrap up and go into our next break, can you just kind of make that call, make that, tell us what that's about? Yeah, I think one of the things that I want to do is just reach out to people who maybe think um, that science isn't their thing, or maybe they're a scientist but not sure what they want to do with it. Scientific illustration, scientific writing, and communication is kind of this untapped field and resource. I think a lot of times when people study science, we get very narrowly focused of, well, I have to go to graduate school, I have to go to medical school, or I have to be a nurse. Those are all totally fine fields to be in. But sometimes that study and commitment to that field, you end up giving up things that you love. You don't get time to draw anymore. And so if there are these people that are like, you know what, I like science and I also like to write. Or I like science and I also like to draw. Here it is. We want you in the group. Please help us kind of illustrate these things and share what we know with the public. So is that the next interdisciplinary class about science and art with the art department? Oh, I would love it. Absolutely love it. If I remember, you are, I think you refer to yourself as a dabbling artist. So what are you drawing now related to science? I draw, most of the time I use scientific elements in what I draw. Recently, I actually got into customizing tennis shoes. So I'm currently painting my own science-inspired tennis shoes. And I also do hydro flasks. So I um, do custom hydro flasks as well. I love to use skulls and flowers and mix really bright colors with kind of really dark elements. And so that's kind of what I'm playing around with. So is there a, a, a gallery that you have somewhere that one could see the art? Um, I am actually working on starting that. Um, I have my own brand currently that I'm working on getting licensed, which is Inked in Eason. Super cool. Well, let's hit our last break, and then we'll come back with our one of the favorites, the favorite segment in my mind of the program. So this next song that we're going to go, we're listening to is called I Still Burn by Fozzie and not the bear. Correct. Right. <laughs> yeah, so Fozzie is actually um, a rock band started by WWE superstar Chris Jericho, who has been in wrestling for many, many years. And so I wanted to play this one in homage to my wrestling class, as well as I saw him live. And this was probably one of the best music festivals I've ever been to. Don't tell me I don't need this anymore. Don't tell me I don't feel the same inside. What the hell do I keep fighting? 
music offer it my soul still stirs and I still I still Welcome back to the Apex Radio Hour. That was I Still Burn by Fozzie. I'll turn it over to you, Ryan. Thanks, Sophie. If you have listened to our show before, you know that one of the things that we find most exciting is to find out what people are watching, reading, or listening to that are bringing them joy. So with this, just so we're, we're going to invite not only our guest, but our brilliant radio engineer, Reese Whitaker, our assistant producer, Evan Miller, will also participate. So get your pens out, get your notes out, and uh, start your, your Netflix queue, because here we go. Uh, Dr. Lindsay Roper, what are you currently watching, reading, or listening to that is bringing you joy? Watching is I am binge streaming The Golden Girls. Betty White is amazing, as well as B. Arthur. Uh, listening, Motionless and White's new album, um, Scoring the End of the Universe, is amazing. And um, reading, my favorite to go back to is Blake Crouch. He's a fabulous horror author. Mm. I hear that B. Arthur was quite a, a thrash bass player as well. <laughs> I did not know that. She just um, got so much cooler. There you go. Well, that's probably a lie. So, Reese Whitaker, what are you currently watching, reading, or listening to that is bringing you joy? So I recently watched, it's on Disney Plus, it was the live performance of Encanto at the Hollywood Bowl, because Encanto was a fantastic movie when it came out, so I just had to watch the live recorded version of it, and then I proceeded to watch the movie again. And I'm not listening to anything, but I'm waiting for Metallica's new album to come out. That'd be sweet, but Lux Eterna, great song. So we've had Disney Plus and Metallica mentioned in the same but I will tell you, I watched that Hollywood Bowl thing as well because it's the original voices mm-hmm. singing it. Uh, and it, it is, if you've never seen this, it is amazingly staged. Yeah. I mean, I could do it with the dancing, without dancing donkeys. But the, the light and the, the way they've done the set is just phenomenal. Yeah, Lin-Manuel Miranda, who also created Hamilton and In the Heights, brilliant stage play, artist, director, producer, whatever he does on it, great. It was good. All right, thank you. Evan Miller, our associate producer, what are you currently watching, reading, or listening to that is bringing you joy? I am currently in the middle of a new docuseries on Netflix called Breakpoint. It's a tennis documentary, and it's a sport I love. Um, So it's been really interesting to see tennis at that level, um, be educated a little bit more on it. It's, It's just been a good thing to watch after studying after a long day. Mean like how corrupt it is, or what's the whole premise of Breakpoint? Um, it's a lot of young tennis players, up and coming. It's kind of they're theorizing who's starting to take the places of, of the greats right now. So Federer, Nadal, people like that. Very cool. Like a drive to survive that F one thing, which is phenomenal. 
All right, my good friend Sophie Javage. Yes. What are you currently watching, reading, or listening to that is bringing you joy? Okay, I think this one's going to actually make you quite happy, Ryan. So, I don't know why it took me so long to watch it, but I just watched the Elvis movie, and oh my gosh, 10 out of 10. I can't stop thinking about it. It was so good, so enlightening. (laughs) So, that is what is currently bringing me joy. That makes me happy. You may not know this, Lindsay, but I'm a bit of an Elvis fan. I could see that. I really could. It was the beginning of my, actually, academic career was... uh, was Elvis this an Presley. Elvis impersonator? No, no, no. Oh, no, come no. on. I think you I do love off. them, but I'm just saying it's different. It I thought that movie was good, too. And interestingly, if you talk to Baz Luhrmann, he will say this isn't a biopic. It's a superhero movie. Oh. So he films in a superhero movie. But damn, well done. Well, good well done. to know. Okay, Ryan, we're going to turn it back on to you. What are you currently watching, reading, or listening to that is sparking you joy? I just finished, and I'm late to this, uh, a series, a limited series on stars called Gaslit. And it is the roughly true type story of Martha Mitchell, who was the husband of John Mitchell during Watergate. John Mitchell was the the attorney general for Nixon, and he was the vice, or he was the chair of the committee who elects the president. He's kind of the mastermind behind the Watergate break-in. And his wife really would tell the truth about this whole thing and and she was kept prisoner in her LA in an LA hotel room and made to feel that she was wrong and it, it's a very Julia Roberts plays Martha Mitchell Sean Penn plays John Mitchell and it really uh, it's fascinating you'll see an amazing uh, portrayal of Gordon Liddy uh, John Dean is played by Dan Stevens who you may remember from Mountain or Downton Abbey and others but it is it'll blow your mind and on Netflix is a, as it just got nominated for an Oscar uh, a documentary called The Martha Mitchell Effect, which is an actual psychological thing that when people tell you that you're wrong when you're actually right. So gaslit is what had brought me some joy. Wow. So with that, we'll end. We'll go out on uh, Dr. Roper's one of her other songs she chose. I'll let her introduce it. It's Apologize by Grandson. And tell us about this. Yeah, this is actually a song that if I had to claim something as my personal anthem, this would be my personal anthem. Because I feel like in life, we're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to do things that maybe we're not proud of from time to time. But it's important to be genuinely who you are in yourself. Okay. So thank you for listening and apologize by grandson. Out here, I'm living with nothing to fear. Out here, there's blessings you've 
so much for listening to the apex hour here on ksuu thunder 91.1 come find us every thursday at 3 p.m right here on thunder 91 we would love for you to come to our events on campus for more information check out suu.edu apex until next time that was the apex hour on thunder 91.1